would, flip in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter, where we are continuing on in our series. In only a few more months, we might make it out of chapter 1. We'll see how things go. So last week, we walked through chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. And those verses focused on rejoicing because of the complete salvation that we have in Christ. And we talked about how we already have rich blessings in the here and now, in this life. But the blessings we have are also incomplete. We are waiting on the fullness of our salvation in glory. We are still waiting on glorified bodies that won't get sick, that won't slow down, that won't die. We are waiting for Christ to finish sanctifying us and making us perfect. We're waiting on a new and a perfect earth where we will walk physically with Christ. And so it is this full salvation that then leads Peter into a digression in verses 10 through 12. And in this section, Peter is going to explain how it is that we have been given the message of this grand salvation, how it has been recorded and written down for us. In other words, you could ask the question, what good is a grand plan of salvation if no one ever hears the message? Well, that would be a pretty pointless message. But now we get to see how the gospel came to us. So here's the thesis of the proposition for this sermon. Because the Holy Spirit preached to us, we must glory in our salvation. So with that, let's read 1 Peter 1, verses 10 through 12. Concerning this salvation... The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that you would guide us as we walk through this text. While only a few short verses, they are immensely rich and packed with theology and with meaning. So Lord, guide us as we go through it, I pray. Amen. We're going to walk through three points today. And the first point is that because the Holy Spirit preached to us, We must know the gospel. This is a pretty simple first point. We must know the gospel. So the first question we need to ask of this text is, who are these prophets? Well, in the Bible, prophets are men who speak from God. More generally, they are ones who proclaim a message from a deity for humanity. So really, most religions have prophets. In the Old Testament, we see that most of the false religions had their own prophets who claimed to speak for those false gods. There were the prophets of Baal, the prophets of Kamash, Asherah, all the Egyptian gods. There were prophets and priests for them. But here, of course, we're concerned with true prophets only. Prophets who really carry forth the word of God. And true prophets can only serve the Lord alone. No false prophets can speak the word of God. Therefore, Peter can only be talking about prophets that speak God's word. So that's the first way we can narrow this down. But there were prophets and prophetesses in the Old and New Testaments. So is Peter referring to Old Testament and New Testament prophets, or just one or the other? 
Well, if you look at verse 11, I think we begin to see the answer. The primary goal of these prophets was to determine the timing of Christ's coming, of the first time the Messiah would come to the earth. Now, New Testament prophets, they didn't need to prophesy when Christ would come because he had already come. They knew when Christ came and saw those Old Testament prophecies fulfilled. Therefore, Peter is concerned with Old Testament prophecies about Jesus Christ, when he would come and when he would come. So how is it that the Old Testament prophets could reveal anything about the future? Well, God spoke through them. He used their wills and their personalities to prophesy the future for his people. The Lord is the one who reveals the future to his prophets. And yet, they somehow knowingly receive, react to, and record the visions that they have been given. So Peter explains the process in his other letter, and he gives us one of the best explanations about how Scripture is written. So 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21. No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So it's amazing to think that God is the ultimate author of Scripture, and yet He's able to do so, to give us Scripture through the personalities of individual writers like Peter. We can conclude then that the prophets Peter is talking about in verses 10 through 12 are the Old Testament writers who wrote the Word of God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So now that we've answered that question of who these prophets are, we can begin to talk about the message of the Old Testament. Well, ultimately, the message of the Old Testament is that mankind needs a perfect Savior and that God is sending that Savior. The message is that God created a good world, a good world in which there was no sin, imperfection, or lack of anything. Mankind was made in the image of God. He was made perfect And he was placed over the rest of creation with dominion to rule over and to subdue it. He was a pure reflection of the living and holy God. And yet through sin and the fall, that image was damaged. Suddenly man was enslaved to death and to hell because of his sin. But even in that moment, God promised that a Savior would come and crush the devil and restore man to a right relationship with God, to restore that image that had been tarnished. And so even before Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, the promise of the gospel is given. And so the entirety of the Old Testament Scripture is the moving forward of God's plan to send this Savior into the world to save sinners to fulfill that promise that was made all the way back in the garden. We can really summarize that whole plan, that whole process by a one word, by the word grace. The Old Testament is about the grace of God coming to His people in Jesus. And that's what our text for this morning is talking about. The Old Testament prophets were eagerly seeking, searching, and trying to figure out when and how this promise of God would be fulfilled. Because God could have given this entire message at once, in one place, to one person. He could have given the exact details of who, where, how, and when. But instead, the perfectly wise God chose to send His Word to His people over time 
in parts. The Old Testament was written by many authors by over the course of some 1,500 years. And with each addition to the canon, God showed His people a little bit more. He encouraged them a little bit more. He taught them a little bit more. And this is the grand concept of progressive revelation, that God teaches His people and reveals His Word over time. Now, God didn't do that because He needed to learn anything or figure anything out. He knows everything, but He knows we need to learn over time. He needs to grow us over time because we are slow in our learning and in our understanding. But furthermore, God is not bound by time. He is eternal. Time is His creation and His servant, and He uses time however He pleases. So He chose to reveal the Word of God gradually for the good of His people and to show more of His glory through that progressive revelation. And He did this by using Old Testament prophets to reveal His message of the coming Savior. Therefore, we can conclude that the reason the Old Testament prophets preached God's Word was to proclaim Christ. He was the subject and He was the content of every bit of Old Testament revelation. And since the entire purpose of the Old Testament was to point Jesus, point to Jesus, every part of the Old Testament is useful. And that also means that the entire Old Testament is truly God's Word, and as such it is authoritative and it's powerful, just like the New Testament. Not about you, but as I don't know about you, but as I have read through the Old Testament again and again, I've noticed more and more of this sense of eagerness and the sense of longing throughout. Even the most glorious sections of the Old Testament have this sense of incompleteness. Solomon's reign was this awesome kingdom, and yet he was led into idolatry and sin. Even that glorious period in Israel's history showed that they needed a better king, one who could rule forever, one who wouldn't fall into sin and lead them astray. Aaron's priesthood had some good moments, but there was failure, there was sin, there was death, showing that Israel needed a better, a perfect priest. Prophets like Isaiah, even that we read earlier, were able to receive and record God's Word. But they weren't the message. They were just men. They were looking for the fulfillment of the message. They all realized that they were prophesying about the Messiah to come, and they wanted to see Him come in their lifetimes. Jesus Himself told His disciples in Matthew 13, But blessed are your eyes, for they see. And your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. They wanted to see and they wanted to hear. They wanted to witness Christ before them, but it was not to be in their lifetime. So what every Old Testament prophet wanted more than anything was to see the promise of the gospel fulfilled and accomplished in their lifetime. They wanted to see Christ. Peter shows us the desperation which these prophets had. But none of them saw Christ's day in their lifetime. They saw more of the promise, but not yet its fulfillment. But you are not like that. You have the full story. You have the word which explains how Christ came and fulfilled all those Old Testament prophecies. Let's move on to some application for this point. 
Knowing all of this should instill great confidence in you. Understanding that we have the full message of God recorded for us is an encouraging thing. We are saved through faith alone in God. And while we do not see Him physically now with our eyes, we see Him with the eyes of faith. We talked about that some last week. We may not see Christ right now, but that does not mean that our faith is blind. On the contrary, the Lord has given us the entirety of the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Bible, to confirm and show that Jesus is the Christ. He has given us the whole message of the gospel that we might believe. In that whole message, we can see the grand story of redemption and how God has orchestrated this grand salvation for us. And so if you ever doubt that, look through the Old Testament and see who the Messiah is supposed to be and what He will do. Then go to the Gospels and the rest of the New Testament to see how Jesus fulfilled and surpassed every promise and prophecy made about Him. Believer, you need to know the Gospel. And more than that, the fullness of the Gospel. You do not stand on unsure ground or uncertain promises. There is no book in the world that rivals the Bible. Not in cohesiveness, not in unity, or even reliability. We have a sure foundation in the Word that has been certified by God. So now the question is, what do we do with that knowledge? Well, the second point is that because the Holy Spirit preached to us, we must believe the Gospel. It went from knowing what it is to now believing it. So as already stated in the first point, the story of the Bible can be summed up by the word grace. The whole redemption story is just that. It's God giving grace to His people. It's God working a plan of salvation so that He could rescue sinners from their sin by grace. You can see that if you look at verse 10. The prophets were seeking out the grace that was to be yours. The Greek translates literally there as the grace unto you. You see how amazing God's plan is. He worked through all the Old Testament and the New Testament writers in order to give grace to you. The Bible is not just a rule book. It's not just history. The Word of God is the message of grace in the gospel written for you so that you might believe in the Savior, Jesus Christ. Scripture is not an accidental side effect of the plan of redemption. It is rather the means by which the message of the gospel can be proclaimed, preserved, and proliferated throughout time and space. The Lord planned it all so that you might have His Word and lay it up in your heart. This is the grace that He has shown to you. The grace of the Word is that in it we see the gospel of Jesus Christ presented clearly. And the the gospel is not one thing and then the Bible another. The gospel is not just one part of the Bible and then the rest is something else. The gospel is the entirety of the Word of God. And we often shorten the gospel and explain it in a few sentences. But the entirety of the gospel is laid out in the Bible and the entirety of the Bible is the gospel. So as we have already affirmed, the central element of the Bible, which the entire Old Testament builds up to, the entire New Testament fulfills and explains, is the life, death, 
and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Then Peter in this text summarizes all of Christ's work into two categories, the sufferings and the glories of Christ. We're going to look at those two. So first, let's talk about the sufferings of Christ. Another label for this category is the humiliation of Christ. The suffering of Christ began when He took on flesh in the Incarnation. That the Creator God would take on human flesh and enter into His own creation. He humbled Himself and He left the glories of heaven for life in a fallen, sinful, and far from perfect world. Not only that, but He was born into a lowly family in a lowly place. Instead of coming at least in human royalty, He came in poverty and in weakness. He limited Himself in human form and He had to learn. He had to endure life in a sinful world surrounded by sickness, death, suffering, and darkness. Yet despite His surroundings, He remained totally and perfectly holy and good. In His earthly ministry, He fulfilled everything the Old Testament said He would do. He actively obeyed every good command of God's law for us. He never broke one of God's laws. There was nothing minute enough in Scripture for him to ignore. He had to obey it all or it would have meant nothing. And finally, he displayed his passive obedience. He submitted to the sovereign will and plan of the Father, and he willingly went to the cross for you. All he had to do was give the command. And legions of angels would have descended and rescued him from the cross, destroyed any of his enemies, and saved his life. But he didn't call for rescue. He didn't call for the angels. Instead, he gave up his life so that he might rescue you. He died to rescue you, the very one whose sin put him on that cross. Death on that cross, on that cursed tree, is the penalty your sins deserve. He had no sin. He bore the penalty for your sins so that you might go free. He endured hell so that you would never have to. Christ suffered in order to bring grace unto you. So as wonderful as the grace of His sufferings is for us, it is also incomplete without His glories. If Jesus went to the cross and remained dead, then you might be forgiven, but you definitely wouldn't be freed from death. But in His body, He put sin and its penalty to death at the cross. But if you are to rise in newness of life, Christ had to also rise. If you are to one day receive a new body, Jesus had to rise. If the church is to conquer over hell, then Christ had to conquer over hell. We call this concept union with Christ. You are forgiven because Christ has united Himself to you. That's why He could die in your place. But He didn't just die for you, did He? He also rose from the grave for you. He rose victorious over death. The grave could not hold the Son of God, and so up He arose. That's why the book of Ephesians tells us that even now, you have been raised with Christ. That's why 1 Corinthians says that you are a new creation in Christ. Furthermore, it was not merely a spiritual resurrection now, but also a future bodily resurrection. Christ rose in a real and a glorified body. Now, we have to wait on our new and on our glorified bodies. 
but our glorified future bodies are a certain reality because we are united to Him who is already raised bodily. But there's more to the glories of Christ. He didn't just rise, but He also ascended up into glory. And so now Jesus sits at the Father's right hand, ruling and reigning, awaiting the day He will gather the last of His saints into His church. And once the last of His saints is brought into the kingdom of God, He will return and He will judge the world. And so now, as we see and participate in the gospel going forth and saving souls, we are witnessing Jesus reigning and saving His people. You You all are all participants in and witnesses of the continuing glory of Christ as He bestows grace on sinners. And it is this grand display of God's grace to sinners that we call the gospel. It can be explained as simply as saying Jesus saves or as complexly as reading and explaining the entirety of the Bible. And the beauty of the gospel is actually something that can be included in the glories of Christ. The Trinity's plan of redemption is so far beyond human understanding that no human mind could have ever arrived at such a wonderful and a glorious plan. It is the greatest love story and the grandest theme in all of history. There's not even a fictional story that can compare to the grand salvation story of God for His people. Every worldly story of redemption, forgiveness, or happy endings are formed from the gospel story, whether the writer realizes it or not. Before the completion of the Bible, happy endings and true resolutions were not really present in most forms of literature. Stories were mostly tragedies or epochs. Even the comedies, though, failed to form any true resolution. Any stories that did have good elements were simply carried forth by the fact that we still bear the image of God. And so through common grace, there's still some good things here and there. But every current story with a happy ending is borrowing from the greatest story ever told, the one that is true. And as I've watched various shows over the past decade or so, I've noticed that these storylines have matched the declining morality of this post-Christian nation. Fewer and fewer shows have happy endings, and many lack any form of resolution whatsoever. Media is growing darker and more hopeless all the time. So the natural question is why? Why are things growing darker? Because sin leads man away from the gospel. And the gospel is the only source of good and hope. So it's only when you reject that work of Christ and stop seeing its beauty that you devolve into the shameful narratives being produced. Put it simply, no gospel means no light. But we have been called to a beautiful and a rich gospel. We have been given the Bible to show us beyond the shadow of a doubt that God loves His people. It is this grand salvation that all the prophets were looking forward to. They couldn't wait to see the fullness of the plan revealed. Peter tells us that even the angels are eagerly longing for even a glance of the gospel. The plan of salvation is so amazing that the angels of glory who minister before the presence of the perfect and the holy God, they crave, they desire to see it completed. Not even they can fully fathom the glory of the redemptive work of Christ. They're not ignorant of what God has done in salvation. Rather, it seems that it is just beyond their ability to fully comprehend it. The gospel is so vast 
that they just want to stare and marvel at its depths. The angels long to gaze into the gospel because in it they see that much more of the glory of God and His wisdom on full display. Furthermore, the fallen angels were never given the gospel message of repentance. While holy angels look on the gospel with joy and with praise, Satan and his comrades look at it with dread and with hatred. They know it is their defeat and their shame. They are rebels against God, but there is no gospel offer for them. But for all who love God, the gospel is a picture of redemption and beauty. The prophets of old looked forward to Christ and the fulfillment of salvation. The angels marvel at the gospel, but we are the recipients of the entirety of the gospel message. The angels can see it, but they can only stand in awe of it. By repenting of our sin and trusting in Christ alone for our salvation, we become participants in the grand narrative of the gospel. We're not waiting for the Messiah to be revealed. We do not have to admire from afar. God has brought us into His very presence. Through the work of Jesus Christ, we have been brought into a state of grace to become partakers in the gospel. We have been brought into the gospel story by faith. So this grand story of the sufferings and glories of Christ attested and explained in the Bible, we call the gospel. And this is the message which we must believe. You cannot refuse to believe the story and yet still receive grace. Faith in Christ is the means by which God's grace must be poured out on you. So if you do not yet believe the gospel, if you do not yet know Christ, I pray the Spirit will open your heart and transform you and create life within you. Because Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. And as Acts 4.12 says, There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so the application for this point is simple. Believe in the gospel. And if you do believe in the gospel, there's one more thing I believe Peter calls us to do in this passage. So the the final point, third point, shortest point, because the Holy Spirit preached to us, we must proclaim the gospel. The prophets, as Peter tells us, knew they were serving not themselves but us. When they wrote and they tried to decipher the revelation that God gave to them, they wrote what would be helpful for all God's saints thereafter. So this leads us to the fact that the gospel is a living and an active thing. It is sourced from the living Christ and applied by the Holy Spirit. It's not just a story. It's not just history. It is the living account of the living God taking dead men and making them alive now and forevermore. And as such, the gospel cannot come to you or anyone else and stagnate. It can't come and remain the same. It can't come and leave you unchanged. The good news of the gospel of Jesus moves powerfully and it always accomplishes the task for which God sends it. So just as His Word brought creation into existence, so it will create life wherever He sends it. Of course, you may raise an objection here and say, Most people who hear the gospel will reject it. Is God really all-powerful if man can resist his gospel? And isn't one of the Reformed doctrines irresistible grace? How then can man resist it? 
Well, that objection comes from a misunderstanding of what it means when God says His Word will always accomplish the purpose for which it was sent. The gospel goes forward no matter what, but its purpose is not only to save, but also to make men without excuse. God's Word is always at work either softening or hardening the hearts of those who hear it. The gospel is for all people, but only those in whom the Spirit has been at work will want to choose to believe. People will always follow their hearts. And if they're unbelievers, that is a fallen heart that loves sin. And they will follow their hearts in rejecting the gospel and continuing in rebellion to God. Though the offer of grace is right in front of them, they will reject it. Thus they are left without excuse. They have snubbed Christ and His salvation. But for those whose hearts have been awakened by the Spirit, they will see the beauty of the gospel and they will believe. God will never keep anyone who wants to believe from believing. The problem is that unless God awakens your dead heart to want Him, you will never want to believe in Him. You will prefer your sin and rebellion and to to hate God. The Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the very division, to the very core of our souls, and either frees us or condemns us. This great gospel has been preached to us who believe. The Holy Spirit has worked in our hearts and enabled us to believe as the church. The kingdom of God advances as the Spirit uses believers to evangelize and preach the gospel. He then applies that salvation to new believers who then become new evangelists and preachers for themselves. So there's really an organic and ever-growing chain of the gospel moving through the church from age to age. The message of the gospel came to the generation before us, who then passed it along to us. And now it is our duty to continue to share the message of Christ with the world, to continue that chain. The sufferings and the glories of Christ have all procured His grace for us. And it is that message of grace in Jesus that we must take to the world and preach to all. Our entire lives must be lived in response to the grace that we have been given. We must show grace where it is not deserved by forgiving others. We must show kindness to all, even the most unkind. But most of all, we must give people Christ. He is the ultimate grace to us, and so we must turn around and share that grace with others. He is the very center of the ultimate story. He is the solution to the problem of sin and the fall. Jesus is the answer to the promise given to Adam and Eve after their sin. He is the answer the world desperately needs. Christ is the longing of the prophets, the joy of the apostles, and your hope of glory. He's the only cure for sin. And that is why we must give people Christ. So utilize whatever time and opportunities God has given you with the lost to share the gospel. If you only have a minute, give them two sentences. If you have hours over years, give them a fuller picture of the Bible. But however you do it, rely on the Spirit to speak and preach through you and give them Christ. Let's conclude. You've been given a rich and a beautiful gift in the Bible. In it, we see how our salvation has been accomplished for us. That's why we began began with the thesis that because the Holy Spirit preached to us, we must glory 
in our salvation. The way in which we glory in our salvation is through knowing, believing, and proclaiming the gospel. My friends, we have received every grace from God. He worked through the Old Testament prophets to point forward to Christ and the New Testament apostles to explain how Christ fulfilled the Old Testament. And now, with this completed message, we have the Word of God recorded for us. We have the gospel in its entirety. So with this gospel in your hands, the message of Jesus Christ has come to you. So what will you do with that message? Will you believe it? Will you reject it? To hold on to the message and just keep it on the back burner and never to believe it, that is still to reject it. Will you believe it? And if you believe it, will you seek to learn and grow from this truth? Will you take the message of grace in Jesus Christ to the world around you? The world needs the truth. And you have the truth. Glory in your salvation and treasure because it is of infinite worth. The grace of Christ for you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the grace that you have shown us. We are the most undeserving We are wretches on our own. We are sinners. And yet you have called us to this rich salvation in Christ. You have given us the fullness of the story. You have not held back anything from your children. Father, we rejoice in that and we pray that you would help us to proclaim that truth, to live out that gospel, to live out that joy and that blessedness and that grace that you have so richly bestowed. Lord, help us in this, we pray. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.